we have this belief system that sleeping apart is necessarily the sign of a loveless or sexless relationship. And that's where all this stigma kind of gets attached to sleeping apart. But it doesn't have to be that way. And what's really true is as much as sort of you don't have to sleep together to have a good sex life, um, what I can absolutely say that the evidence clearly shows is sleeping well is definitely a good thing for your sex life. Hey, everyone, I'm Maria Sansone, and this is Mom to Mom, the podcast. So glad you're here with me today, especially if you are having trouble sleeping. I know this applies to a lot of you out there. So listen up. Like, think about it. When was the last time you had a good night's sleep? I'm talking like a really good night's sleep without any interruptions, without kids climbing in your bed, without your partner snoring, without alarms going off in the middle of the night. That's a whole, that's a story for another day. That's my house. Um, But when was the last time you really slept through the night, felt really good when you woke up? I mean, for me, I'd be hard-pressed to tell you when. And if that's you, don't worry, because we are going to get you straight today. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Wendy Troxell. She is a clinical psychologist. She is a certified sleep specialist, and she is the author of a book called Sharing the Covers. So today we're going to talk about all the things that you can do to improve your personal sleep habits and how to navigate problems you might be having with your partner. You know, sharing a bed isn't always easy, and people evolve as the relationship evolves and as you age and things like snoring that maybe weren't a problem when you got together are now a huge problem. And she says that may mean a sleep divorce. So we're going to get into what a sleep divorce is and if it's something that you should be considering. And I know that sounds really intense, but she breaks it all down for us. And all this information is very, very helpful. So here is my conversation on sleep with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy, good morning. Let's do this thing. Let's do it. I'm excited. So you are internationally recognized for your work on sleep. This is something that you have spent a lot of time on, invested a lot of hours in. Why is sleep so important to you? And later we'll find out why it's so important for all of us. Yes, I I like to say that for the past roughly 20 years, I've spent most of my waking hours thinking about and studying sleep and helping individuals and couples and families and even corporations to help optimize their sleep, to optimize their well-being, their health and their productivity. Just to start with the basics, sleep is a fundamental biological need, just like our need for food or water. So when we sacrifice that need, our bodies, our brains, our behavior, and even our relationships will suffer. So it's vital across kind of every domain of our lives. And yet too often people take it for granted. Yeah. And I wonder if it's something we're doing intentionally. I mean, I don't know anyone that says, yeah, I just, I want to sleep poorly. It's not important to me. It's more like, we're struggling with the sleep. We're having trouble falling asleep. We're having trouble staying asleep. There's like all these little factors. So I think we all want to have a healthy sleep life. It's how do we get there? So you're going to help us today 
with that? I certainly hope, I hope so. And yeah, I think that there's several different camps of sleep problems. There are those who simply just think that sleep is for the weak and, you know, I'm just going to hard charge through and I don't need sleep. And believe me, I work with a lot of those populations. And so I think it's important for that group to be really like, we need to be focused on why sleep is such a priority. But then you're right. There's also plenty of people who know Sleep is really important. I'd like to get more of it. I'd like to get better of it, but I simply can't because my brain is still racing at night or I just don't have the time because I'm juggling my work, my family, carpools, et cetera. And so sleep ends up getting the short shrift. And so you do have to be really intentional about it and find a way to make sleep a non-negotiable priority. So let's jump into that a little bit more. You're talking about some of the issues that people have around sleep. Um, Let's talk about women in general. You mentioned carpool and just, you know, we always have things on our brain. I think on this show, we talk a lot about anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know a lot of women face anxiety and sometimes you're just charging through the day and it's not until you actually just lay down that it all comes in, you know, those to-do lists. Um, so talk us specifically about what some of the sleep issues that women are facing today. Sure. So the most common sleep disorder is insomnia and women are about twice as likely to have insomnia as compared to men. Insomnia is characterized by difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep or just that poor, non-refreshing sleep quality and has some type of daytime impairment associated with it. So maybe it's disruptions in your mood. Maybe uh, you have high levels of fatigue or you just can't concentrate. Um, So these are some of the daytime consequences. And it's very common uh, among people who have trouble kind of quieting their mind. And, you know, there's also very strong links between insomnia and mental health disorders like depression, anxiety. So there's actually a two-way street before between those. People who have depression or anxiety are more likely to have insomnia, um, but insomnia can actually predict the onset of new mental health disorders. So that's, that's why it's so important to address sleep problems if they're there. There's lots of other sleep problems that women face across their reproductive history. You know, we see lots of sleep problems during pregnancy. Also across the menopausal transition, uh, women show an increase in a variety of sleep problems, sometimes related to hot flashes and other symptoms of menopause, but also even before the actual transition happens, that's when women's sleep quality becomes particularly disrupted for many. Yeah. And so since we have you, I definitely want to get into some of those strategies. Um, And we will in a moment about how we can improve upon that because everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And for me, that insomnia has, it's been in waves, you know, it's not a life sentence for me, but I'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, I'll have a period where I just can't fall asleep or I'll have a period where I'm falling asleep fine. And then I wake up at three or four every morning. So I'm very curious about that. But first, I want to I want to talk about that book that's sitting right next to you, sharing the covers. So in this book, you really dive into how couples can improve the issues that they have. So we've been talking about just the singular person and how hard it is just for us to sleep. But now you have a partner. Do it together. Bed, who also is going through their own stuff and how that plays into your sleep. So talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, well, I'm delighted to get to talk about this. And yeah, so I have been studying sleep for about 20 years and kind of throughout the history of sleep research, which began around 60 or 70 years ago, most sleep research and kind of everything we know about sleep focuses on the individual. And yet the majority of adults at some point in their lives do share a bed with a partner. And there was virtually no science on this topic, but lots of beliefs and assumptions society has about how couples should or shouldn't sleep together. Um, so I really wanted to bring to bear, and I have over the past 20 years of studying this topic, sort of what it means to sleep together, how our relationships and our sleep are intertwined, how our sleep quality can affect our relationship quality, and, and so on. And it's really Really kind of giving the book, the purpose of the book is to really sort of cover the breadth of the topic on what it means to share a bed. Because that time that we share a bed, I mean, sleep itself takes up about a third of our lives. And when you think of that, for the many people who do choose to share a bed, that's a major part of their coupled existence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges that couples can and do face when it comes to the shared or marital bed. And yet we have really sort of no way of talking about those issues. So I wanna give couples strategies to open the conversation. How do you address the fact that, honey, I'm not sleeping very well with you, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. So it's these kinds of things that because there's been so little scientific investigation of the topic um, that we really, you know, people are left to sort of assume that, well, you know, what works for, you know, the rest of society must work for us. And that's not always the case. And you don't think about this nope. until it becomes a problem. Absolutely so for everyone not. out there who's going, I never really even thought about sleeping next to my partner, it being an issue. It's because it's not an issue yet. Exactly. Yes. But it could exactly. be, it could be, as you said, with things that, you know, as hormones change, as things happen, maybe a partner who never snored starts snoring or someone starts going through menopause and now they're not sleeping. So it or children happen. enter the picture. What's that? <laughs> or children enter the picture. Or children enter the picture. And now you've got two kids sleeping between you. So when couples get to a place where it becomes a problem, what do you do? Sure. So, so the first strategy is to kind of open this up, to open and honest communication. And I always say, you know, the, the reality is what defines a healthy couple is not the absence of conflict or disagreement or challenges. It's how you manage those conflicts, disagreements or challenges. And that extends to the night. So being able to talk about what's working and what's not working in the bedroom when it comes to sleep not just sex, is so vital. And there's some sort of general healthy relationship strategies that you can bring to bear when it comes to negotiating the night. So, you know, using I statements, focusing on your experience of how important it is for your relationship to get the sleep you need. I'm not sleeping well, honey. Can we talk about, you know, this new schedule you're on or um, your tendency to bring your phone into the bedroom? Because I'm not sleeping well and when I'm not sleeping well, I'm not as good a partner. So that's an I statement. Focusing and on the here and now, yeah. Just a quick follow-up on that. I would imagine that that's probably a better conversation to have like in the morning or in a calm moment, right? Because for, for me, take it from me, I tend to do the opposite of what you're supposed to half the time. I get fed up and I'm like, you're snoring. 
Exactly. Breaking out. And then by morning, I forget about it. It never comes to light. And then we're back in the cycle and I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't present itself till it presents itself. And then I flip out. And you flip out. Right. So you need to set the stage for healthy and open and effective communication. And that starts, first of all, you don't want to be sleep deprived or sleepy when you're doing it. Right. So probably not the best thing to have this conversation at 2 a.m. If your partner wakes you up, Uh, you really do ideally want to be well rested because when you're well rested, you are a better communicator. You are less prone to conflict and you have better judgment. So you're going to be able to express more effectively kind of using these techniques that I suggest, like the I statements, like staying focused in the here and now, not sort of blaming them for everything. Um, Because you really want to sort of problem solve effectively with your partner and you're more likely to do it when it's well-timed. And that includes not being exhausted when you're doing so and and, and ensuring the same with your partner. So honestly, I say this when it comes to any sort of conflict or heavy issue that you're raising with your partner, be mindful of the timing. And if you guys are both sleep deprived and angry, we can call that slangry, you know, like that's not a good time to approach a heavy topic um, because you're more likely to, you know, start butting heads. You're less likely when you're sleep deprived to be able to understand your partner's emotions or their, their perspectives. And that can be really toxic when you're trying to work through an issue in your relationship. Timing is everything. Mm-hmm. So this has been so interesting talking about all of this sleep stuff and not knowing too much about it. Initially, I thought one of the main things you probably deal with is snoring, right? That seems like something we all hear. This is something I've dealt with. And it's just feel, you feel so bad because on your end, if your partner's snoring, you're like, I know they can't control this, but I also want to throw them out the window. (laughs) Exactly. When you get to a place with couples where they really are having a problem and, you know, can't be controlled. You talk about something called sleep divorce. Sounds very salacious. So Lay it on me. All right. So first of all, snoring is one of the most common issues that couples face. And it is one of the primary reasons why couples may choose to sleep apart, i.e. a sleep divorce. By the way, I hate that term. It's so judgmental. And plenty of healthy couples may choose that sleeping apart is the best way that they and their partner can get the best sleep they can. And so that could be the best thing for their relationship. So I actually try to avoid using the term sleep divorce because it's so judgy. It sounds scary. Yeah. It sounds intense. Yes, absolutely. And there's no time ever that the word divorce, when attached to your relationship, you know, is anything but a negative connotation. So, and again, you know, I work with couples to find the strategy that's going to work for you. There's not a one size fits all approach. So yes, snoring is common. Um, And what's really important, uh, what I also want to encourage couples before you jump to, you know, one strategy, whether it be separate beds or something else, it's really important to recognize that snoring could be more than just a nuisance. It could be a sign of a significant sleep disorder known as sleep apnea, which has a host of other downstream consequences uh, for our heart and vascular system. So be a good partner. If your partner is snoring loudly um, on a regular basis, if you ever witness them gasping for air, um, or if your partner tells you you do that, because by the way, women can have apnea too. 
we're just, um, we tend to be woefully underdiagnosed for apnea. But so if you witness gasping or loud snoring on a nightly basis with your partner, use that as a cue to encourage your partner gently, not in a nagging way, to seek medical treatment. Find out if there's something, a medical disorder behind this. Beyond that, yes, you know, snoring is called a disease of listeners because it can be so disruptive to the bed partner's sleep. In fact, studies have shown that about, you know, um, if you sleep with a partner, if you sleep with a partner who snores, women are about three times as likely to have insomnia. So it's a big deal. Um, there are lots of strategies to, to manage this. Sleep divorce is one of them. And that really involves couples making the decision to sleep you know, in separate rooms, because typically even separate beds in the same bedroom, you know, aren't going to help you because the noise is so loud. But there's other strategies as well. You can try earplugs. You can work with your partner to positionally try to reduce the snoring. Uh, for instance, have them um, be elevated in the bed and encourage them to avoid too much alcohol because alcohol will increase the snoring. Mm. And makes you wake up in the middle of the night. It, oh, there's all sorts of consequences of, of too much alcohol for your sleep. But for the snorer, it will make them snore more loudly. And then you'll be really angry about it. Yeah. So how does this tie in with sex life and intimacy? So now you're talking these crazy, you know, intense words like divorce, like sleep divorce. And somehow along the lines, sleeping together turned into sex, which is right. two totally different things, right? Sleeping is sleeping and sex is sex. But if you're not in the same bed or you choose to, you know, find some arrangement that works for you, how does that impact the sex life? Right. So I devote a lot of time to this issue in my book, both sort of historically discussing the trends in couples sleeping arrangements and also sort of discussing kind of where we are now with regard to the stigma attached to sleeping apart. And it's true. We have equated the you know literal meaning of sleeping together with the biblical meaning of sleeping together. Of lying together. Yeah. Right. And, and like they don't have to be the same thing. You know, you can you can sleep together and actually sleep and not have sex. You, and you can't can have do sex that and not actually sleep sleeping. Right. <laughs> and and yet it's these beliefs about what it means to sleep apart, which is again a modern day belief. It didn't used to be this way. We have this belief system that sleeping apart is necessarily the sign of a loveless or sexless relationship, and that's where all this stigma kind of gets attached to sleeping apart but it doesn't have to be that way. And what's really true is as much as sort of you don't have to sleep together to have a good sex life, what I can absolutely say that the evidence clearly shows is sleeping well is definitely a good thing for your sex life. If you're not sleeping well, that will hurt your sex life. And there's a number of reasons for that that I can describe to you if you're interested of, of the real links between sleep and sex. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, we're just better people when, we've, when we're well rested. So everything's working better and we're happier and more relaxed. I'm wondering, and I want to ask this because I'm sure there's people out there who are listening and they're saying, you know, I've considered sleeping in a separate bed, but it just seems so drastic. It's, you know, it's a big, yeah. it's a big move, you know, how do you know when it's time to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what happens too often is that 
the decision comes out of desperation. You know, it was never sort of a intentional proactive decision, but just, you know, after so many nights, she wakes up, she's been kept up, you know, by her partner snoring, or maybe he's thrashing around because there's lots of things that can challenge the shared sleep experience. Maybe, you know, he's stealing the sheets all the time. The woman just kind of, and it could be the man too, but she just sort of out of total desperation gets up, gets out of bed. There's never conversation about it. Um, it's just this sort of act of desperation. I do encourage people to be more intentional about it. And in terms of a sort of when do you know it's time for a change? Well, if the sleep disturbance is lasting for, you know, most nights per week for, I would say, a month or longer, because maybe it's just a transient thing. Maybe your partner is tossing and turning because he or she is going through a really rough work spell and it's this is transient. Well, you probably can sort of work through that one. But if it's lasting and if it's impacting your mood, your energy levels during the day, your relationship with your partner, that's when it's time to have the conversation with your partner instead of responding as an act of desperation. And maybe you want to try a temporary strategy. A lot of couples come to me really nervous about this idea of what it's going to do to their relationship. Like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want to be like my grandparents or, you know, the bed is really special to us. I don't think I can do this forever. And yet I'm desperate. I'm not sleeping. So I'll talk to them about, to them about well, what if we just did a trial? Maybe, you know, you or, or an on again, off again situation where maybe you share the bed during the sort of the low stakes time, like on the weekends where, you know, it's not the end of the world. You don't have such a schedule to abide by in the morning. But maybe if you're both undergoing a lot of stress at work and you really need to prioritize your sleep, you sleep apart for that, you know, the weekdays, and then you come together on the weekends. These sort of on again, off again, actually can be really quite uh, sort of romantic for some couples because they have this sort of reunion period after sleeping apart. They both get to prioritize their sleep, but they have this really sort of lovely coming together as well. And that's a way for couples to sort of experiment with what's working, what's not working in terms of their sleeping arrangement. Because I'm certainly not suggesting that sleeping apart is for everyone. I'm just simply saying that couples should prioritize their sleep for the health of their relationship. And that's just one strategy out of many that you may wish to try if sleep is getting in the way of a healthy relationship. Where do you stand on sleep aids? Uh, over the counter, you know, prescription, all, all the above. Where do you stand on that? And when do you think it's time to start looking into that when you're struggling? Sure. So when it comes to sleep medications, unfortunately, they are sort of far too often prescribed. And there are both side effects in terms of grogginess during the daytime, which can be particularly concerning if you work in certain occupations or if you're driving a lot, can uh, sort of influence your motor activity. The thing about sleep aids is they're really intended for short-term use. And I think for some people, they could be absolutely effective. They are not intended as the be-all, end-all strategy for long-term use. It's also true that sleep aids do not replicate naturalistic sleep. So the actual electrical um, sort of uh, signature of sleep in the brain is different when a person is taking a sleep medication versus natural sleep. And so that's really important to know because these medications generally fall under the category of uh, sedative 
hypnotics. And sedation is just not the same thing as sleep. There may be a time and a place that's useful, but if you're someone who's struggling nightly and for months and months with insomnia, which is a clinical disorder, this goes beyond sort of what you were talking about earlier, that sometimes you mostly sleep well, except when you don't. I'm the same way, by the way. Clinical insomnia is a disorder that is, you know, lasts most nights a week and for, you know, many, many months. Um, and actually the most recommended treatment for insomnia is a behavioral one. It doesn't come in pill form. It's a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it involves a set of recommendations that modify both thoughts and behaviors that interfere with good quality sleep and unfortunately become habitual the longer a person suffers from insomnia. Um, and it's highly effective. It's you know recommended by the American College of Physicians as the frontline treatment for insomnia. And yet far too often people want the quick fix. So they go for the pill. But unfortunately, it's really not a fix. It's a temporary Band-Aid and it does have consequences. So I really encourage people go for the strategy that really works. It's not an overnight fix and that's why it's hard, but it's really about making lasting change that will sort of help you throughout your journey of dealing with insomnia. So this has been great. We've covered so much here about, you know, sleeping with a partner and if you're struggling with that, but what are just some of your, some of your tips in general for a restful night's sleep? Because so many of us periodically or even more struggle with this. Sure. So let me let me give you my top evidence-based strategies for sleeping well. This is really to optimize your sleep health. The first thing is to maintain a regular sleep-wake schedule. When it comes to our circadian rhythms, which is one of the internal processes that controls our sleep, regularity in our sleep sleep and wake times is absolutely key. I suggest you start by setting a consistent wake-up time and then work backwards to determine uh, what your bedtime should be. Allowing seven to nine hours of sleep per night is the ideal. If you're far from that, try to at least increase your sleep window maybe by 15 minutes to try to get to that goal. Keep that wake up time consistent throughout the week and try to get some morning light exposure first thing in the morning. Light exposure, ideally outdoors, is one of the most powerful things you can do to help set that internal circadian rhythm, which in turn will promote healthy, good quality sleep. Second, have a wind down routine. Now, all of us who are mothers know that, you know, we would never be like, you know, roughhousing with our two-year-old and then say, oh, it's eight o'clock. I'm going to pick the child up and then like plop them in the crib and say, good night, turn off the lights, right? Are you saying wind down or wine down? <laughs> Not to be confused, wind with a D down. So excuse me. Yeah. So just as our children, we know, need a little bit of time to settle, um, you know, reading a book with them, et cetera, to prepare for bed. We as adults need to do the same thing. And I think particularly as women, we're so sort of rushing, rushing throughout our, our days. We have lists in our head and we're doing this, doing that, being pulled in a million different directions. And we don't give ourselves that opportunity to settle and unwind, ideally about the hour before you go to bed. That's really critical, particularly for those who find that they get in bed and then their minds are still racing. So try to do something that's relaxing, maybe with your partner. It's a great time to connect as well. Have a conversation, cuddle, uh, 
uh, read a book together, uh, listen to a podcast, do something that's going to help settle your mind and your body before you try to enter sleep. You'll find that you have much greater sleep success by doing that. And the third thing I want to mention, um, just particularly in this day and age we're we're living through, um, there's this common phenomenon known as bedtime procrastination. And again, many women face this. That's when, you know, you've got these really, you know, know, your best laid plans are, you know, to go to bed at a reasonable hour, let's say of 10 p.m. But, you know, lo and behold, you get caught up doing laundry or rushing around the house, or maybe, you know, you're watching your favorite Netflix show and like, it's your only time to have some me time. And it's understandable. I get it. So lo and behold, 10 p.m. becomes midnight That's the bedtime procrastination. And then you end up being behind the eight ball the next day because you're sleep deprived. So I recommend that you actually set an alarm to cue yourself uh, before bedtime too, about an hour before. And that can sort of remind you, okay, now it's time to start that wind down. Now it's time to not get too busy doing something else or not get too caught up in that addictive television show because that will interfere with your sleep. So it's a good reminder. And it's also important reminder that of course you need self-care and some me time, but don't do it at the expense of your sleep because that is most certainly not self-care. I'm over here giggling, thinking about all the things that I have gotten out of bed to do over the years from like touch up paint in the house to run outside and do something in the yard to going in and throwing in a load of laundry to starting a whole new project. So I think so many of us can relate to so much of what you are talking about. So thank you so much for all this information today. We can check out your book, sharing the covers if we want to get more information. But Dr. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Sleep well tonight. (laughs) Pleasant dreams. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Mom to Mom. I hope you got some good information about sleep and sleep habits and perhaps kicking your partner out of the bed. (laughs) Maybe that's in the cards for you. Either way, um, I hope you love this as much as I did, and I hope you get a great night's sleep tonight. In the meantime, if you want to binge on some episodes of Mom to Mom, you can find them wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're in the New England area, you can watch us on TV on NBC 10 Boston on Mondays at 11.30 a.m. You can find me there. All right. In the meantime, sweet dreams, and I'll see you next time here on mom to mom